as left-wing people believe, I believe, that the expertise that surrounds us in our movements has the solutions to all of our problems, actually. That working people know what they need for liberation, that black people know what they need for liberation, that indigenous people know what they need for liberation. It's the strategy that needs to be debated and discussed. But in this room, we have all of the solutions. And so tonight, part two of the podcast, isn't amazing how it's like magic. This is going to be a whole week has passed and everyone's like, my life's totally changed. And we're all like, we're just sitting here. It's magic. Um, and we'll be talking. And, uh, and so please come to the microphone. And the first person who's going to come to the microphone, I'm going to have to get you to turn it on. So yeah, thank you for having this discussion. Um, this is a really important, important time, not just because of the uh, event that's happening tonight, but- Speak from your stomach. Uh, also, as, as you've go. identified, what's happening here, United States, Brazil with Bolsonaro, Hungary, Sweden, probably many other places, white supremacy is on the rise. And you know, it is, it's scary, especially for us racialized people in this room, right? We are going to be uh, we're the canary in the coal mine, right? So um, the last bit of the discussion was kind of about what do we do next, right? And this is just like my tentative thoughts on this. Uh, I'm not even convinced by my own argument, even though I make this argument all the time. Um, <clears throat> I, I often think about how in the heyday of white Americans lynching black people, the media, like the newspapers and all that, uh, you know, they were as invested, as enthusiastically invested and implicated in white supremacy as the people lynching those black people. And they would write these incredibly lurid and detailed accounts of black people being lynched. And they did not do this because they wanted to inform people about the rise of white supremacy, right? They weren't in solidarity with black people. They were trying to create a situation, they were trying to create a narrative out there that would instill fear in black people and keep them in their place, right? And it kept people in their place, kept people from unionizing, from for standing up for themselves in their communities, for lack of a better term. Uh, and uh, it kept them in check. And it also had the effect, the intended effect, I think, of normalizing what was happening. It was just a kind of a normal thing. Just like today, we see the lynchings of black people, and it's just kind of a normal thing. We're not as stunned as we should be every time we see a black person being killed by the cops or by a George Zimmerman. So what I'm wondering is, what I sometimes worry is, the media has not changed. The corporate media is not on our side, right? It's interested in page clicks, in making money, and they are not writing stories about Bannon because they want to inform people about the rise of white supremacy. They just care about page clicks. And sometimes I worry that by opposing white supremacists publicly in an uncareful way, uncautious way, I don't know if those are, those are words, but um, we are inadvertently giving them PR or supporting a corporate media that only cares about page clicks. I understand, obviously, the natural inclination. It's not our fault. We're working within the system that we're, this is the terrain that we're on and this is what we can do. But sometimes I think uh, maybe we need to engage in a lot more quieter forms of resistance. Going into communities, talking with people, asking people like, what do you need, right? I have a feeling a lot of people, like if we actually spoke with people who would be the victims of white supremacists, 
they wouldn't say we need rallies or op-eds or, or this or that, right? Uh, we, we have no idea. I mean, we, I don't think we're doing that, that kind of work as much as we should. What are your thoughts on that? Wicked. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I powerfully disagree. <laughs> For a, for a hell of a lot of reasons, but like to just focus on one thing that you said, which is that uh, we give them unintended PR. Like what, I mean, what do we think would happen if we didn't protest it? Would they have less PR? Like, I think we have to recognize the world that we are in. They are going to get that PR. Part of what we were discussing earlier is the type of discussion that is happening in the public sphere is the important part for me. It's not like I, you know, there's a risk in not publicly opposing um, the total devolution of our society. <laughs> and that risk is that uh, they do it anyway because they are powerful, they do have the money, and they have the wherewithal to completely railroad our movements and our society as it exists. And if it is the case that we believe that, then there is a massive risk that we're taking if we say, we're just gonna do really quiet organizing because we don't wanna unintentionally bolster them. But if we do clever organizing that does shift the narrative landscape, then that is a better outcome for what could happen later on. Because what it does is, even though my mother, for example, may not be like, I want a rally to happen tomorrow because of all of the, the cops who are killing black people, she probably doesn't know. She hates all of the work that I do. <laughs> like, she's just nervous about my livelihood in a good way, right? In a motherly uh, way. In a motherly way. Yeah. Uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't hate it because it's like, she, she doesn't think it's good. She just, like, doesn't want me to be there. She wants someone else to do it. <laughs> um, but she would never, like, that wouldn't be her response. But she knows about some of these events because we made it public. She knows that it's happening she wouldn't have known about Andrew Loku or Jermaine Carby had folks who are organizing in Black Lives Matter not made it a public situation. And there are people who probably wouldn't have known, maybe, about uh, the Bannon from talk that's happening tonight if organizations, some of whom are represented in this room tonight, didn't uh, go ahead and, and uh, you know, do the protests that they did. And perhaps, Part of our disagreement is whether or not it matters that they knew or not. I think it does matter that they knew because people need to know where we are in the alt-right, white supremacist, super, super kind of fascist, right-wing organizing, where we're at. Because they're really good at organizing underground, overground, all over the damn place. So it doesn't, and we kind of suck <laughs> doing the same thing. Like, nah, we're not that bad. Like, I'll, I'll give us some, you know, we do well with what we have, right? Mm. But I think, it's, I think it's really dangerous for us to be so nervous of their power that we quiet ourselves. That I do not think is the solution. I, 
I think, though, that we are not good at talking about how the mainstream media is so fucked. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a reason that Sandy and I are not on CBC Radio. <laughs> right? Like, truly. Like, there, are, there is a... Fu- like, I will, they will not interview me at CBC Quebec City, even though the Anglophone community is, like, fucking ten people and five of them work at the CBC and I'm the sixth person, right? <laughs> and they're all great and they're all lovely and they're all my friends. Like, there is a reason, and it's because the mainstream media actively shuts out anything to the left of the center. And that is... That means, and I think we're, like, what you're saying is totally, I actually, you know, when I heard, I'm like, I agree with what you're saying. But we have to then be very intelligent about how we engage with the press, right? It's like, first of all, most journalists, they're workers, they're union members, they're average people, they're literally trying to get the news, and they hate their editor more than you hate their editor, right? (laughs) That is, I think, really important to say. And then the mainstream press also has all of the problems woven into it, all of the white supremacy woven into it, not, and not just woven into it, but like, the maintenance of white supremacy, right? Like, 10 years ago at Ryerson, where we are, 10 years ago, probably fucking more. No, 10 years ago. The Ryerson review, no, the Ryersonian, to, 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 to talk about whether or not we have a racism problem at Ryerson, because the school's so diverse, it's not possible to have a racism problem at Ryerson. The Ryersonian thought, oh, it would be a good idea, oh, it happened to be March 21, oop, we didn't know, to feature the leader of Canada's National Socialist Party on the front page. Now you're like, what? There's a Nazi party in Canada? We were like the same thing. It was like some fucking old fucking dude whose party was just him. And the hook to Ryerson was that he went to Ryerson in 1961. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. This was a thing that happened. The guy that did it is like now in the mainstream press. And everybody that worked on that paper are all in the mainstream press. And, you know, and I, and I, and, and they, I'm, I, I've, I've talked to many of them still, and I think that it, minds have evolved and the media has evolved, but not a lot. And so, you know, we actually need to be very good at saying the mainstream press is an expression of the status quo. It is not doing the work that we actually need it to do. Certainly the public broadcaster isn't. The post-media chain can't. Um, and, then, and then so it's like, so what do we do? Do we write for Rank and File magazine, right, or rankandfile.ca? Yes, many of us do, right? It's really important. It's a, that's a left-wing workers' publication. Uh, do we make media? Do we make a podcast? Do we notice when the mainstream podcast establishment doesn't even know we exist? <laughs> yeah, we notice that. <laughs> we fucking notice that. You know, do we notice that, like, both of us are often shut out of platforms in Canadian media that I literally cannot get anything published right now? Yeah, fucking, I notice that shit. And so, but I don't know if other people notice it. And so we need to talk to each other. We need to understand that these processes, this is not random. This isn't by accident. It's not like Sandy's just not that talented and actually fucking Matt Galloway is, right? (laughs) Okay. I mean, put her on the morning radio. <laughs> yeah, we are making me enemies, like. <laughs> no, and I actually, like, I, I just, I, I honestly, like, when I think of Toronto radio, I just think of Matt Galloway. That's the only reason my connection. Um, and so that's not a dig at him. Um, but it is a dig at Tom Power. <laughs> because it's so boring. It is the fucking boringest shit in the whole world. Like, even my parents are like, well, it's not, like, it's kind of boring, right? It's like, I know. But it's, like, actually, you're raising an important point, which is, like, Okay, so the media has discussed what is happening, like that, whatever's happening at Roy Thompson Hall tonight, and the only discussion they're having about it is 
free speech? Should we let him speak or should we not let him speak? As though there aren't better things to say about it. Like the discussion about mining that we were having earlier today. Or the and shooting in interests. Quebec City. Or the fact that, you know, the shooting in Quebec City and Bannon having a relationship uh, or the, the uh, what's his name? Bissonnette. Bissonnette having an, like, an obsession with following Bannon's rhetoric. Or, you know, the, the fact that, you know, there's so many ors. There's so many of these things that could be looked at uh, as a framework for discussing what's happening tonight. You know, uh, mining Brazil. Why would the, the Monk Foundation be able to control our political discussions on and on and on? Those are the debates that should be happening in mainstream media. They're not, and so we, we create our own medias. But I think, like, you know, when, when we get those platforms, it's so important. When I do media um, trainings, this is, like, what I say. So free media training for everybody. Um, <laughs> like, when a journalist asks you a question, like, Nora, like, but don't you think that Stephen Bannon deserves freedom of speech and the right to speak tonight? That you say, so did you know about the mining interests that the punk... Like, you don't care about what how they're framing it, the story that they've already come up with, the story they've already written. They've pre-written a story, and so they're asking you the questions that they're expecting you to have certain answers to that are already in their notebook. You have to just, just you know, take over the entire interview, if you're one of these people who are getting interviewed for these types of things, take over the entire interview, create a whole new interview on your own, and if the journalists can follow you, great. If they can't, whatever, you got the camera. Make sure, hopefully, it's live, and you can just... <laughs> <laughs> Take that whole thing to wherever you need to go and just switch up uh, the, the political discussion entirely. Master, That's more important. Masterclass is Sandy on power and politics, <laughs> which Google it, and I noticed they never asked you back. <laughs> they, ne they probably never will. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it's a masterclass interview. It is so good. And it's, and it's, again, it's like we're not this, we do not live in a meritocracy. We live in a, in a deeply unmeritous society. <laughs> you guys were talking about the, the, the uh, Canadian Alliance earlier in Stockwell Day. I remember the Canadian Alliance. Mm -hmm. One of the things I remember is after everybody laughed at Stockwell Day coming to his first press conference on a ski-doo. Which was hilarious. Which was fucking hilarious. <laughs> um, he went on to become the public safety minister of this country under Stephen Harper. So I always get nervous when we laugh too much mm -hmm. because when we laugh too much, we're ignoring sometimes the real danger that these ideas present. I wanted to give you a little report back on what happened earlier this evening because I was there. Ooh, great, thank you. Um, there were, I would estimate, in the neighborhood of, let's just say many hundreds, mm -hmm. six, eight, hundred people perhaps mm -hmm. around the Nathan Phillips or the um, Roy Thompson Hall area. Um, people were loud, people were boisterous, uh, the police were in full force in response. Uh, dozens and dozens of police, mounted police. Oh, that's what I was um, There were mounted police. Uh, police were armed with pepper spray and they did deploy pepper spray in people's faces who got close to the barricades. And uh, people were also there were barricades to me. Pardon? For a crowd of about 800? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, they brought out everything. Um, oh, my God. 
people who got close, the barricades were used to separate those who had paid to see the white supremacist from those of us who were protesting. And if you got too close to the barricades and they thought you were getting in the territory, they pepper sprayed people. Some were also arrested. Um, I went up and down the crowd interrogating people who had paid to be there. First of all, the crowd, 97% white, I would say, paid tickets and standing in the line. Shock, yes, complete shocker. The audience is shocked. Um, and to answer what you were asking before, when you kind of ask people some of these questions, why are you giving your money to a white supremacist, for example, it's clear that they hadn't even considered that their money was going to the white supremacist. Um, when you I ask- mean, Really? Oh, for real. Oh, for real. Oh, for real. When you ask them why they think this is entertainment, they say, oh, well, I'm just here to hear a, a debate. I said, oh, you haven't made up your mind about white supremacy yet? <laughs> um, the most troubling thing were the hundreds of people in the lineups, I thought anyway, who were wearing a poppy. And you're wearing a poppy on your chest while you're lining up to go see a white supremacist speak. <laughs> the irony. Oh, it's so <laughs> it disgusting. People have no self-awareness. It's unreal. But this is, so yeah, people are not, wow. this, is, this is entertainment and it's a game to a lot of people and yeah. they're not reflecting. What I wanted to ask the two of you though is, um, the federal NDP did not, jump on board condemning this gathering until 11 people were murdered in a synagogue in Pittsburgh last Saturday. It was only after that that they decided that they were against this shit. So if a lot of us feel despair in the lack of organizing, I understand, but what I see hope in, in Ontario anyway, are some of the, um, issue-by-issue issue movements, the fight for a fairer minimum wage and labor standards, the fight for our sex ed curriculum, as another example. I see people actually organizing and being excited and mobilized around these things, and I actually wanted to ask the two of you, outside of big political parties doing the things we want them to do, what do you think about some of these grassroots organizing around labor, around trans and queer rights that are coming up in spite of that lack of leadership from political party. Yeah, um, so one of the things that affected me in a major way was after, I like telling the story of Sandy on the stage and you'll see why. After Hurricane Sandy, <laughs> um, I had a weird opportunity to come, uh, to go down to New York and actually it was the first time in my life in New York City and they're like, welcome to New York City, here's your crowbar, here's your boots and you're gonna actually do disaster relief. And, um, and it was the first time in my life that I saw the total breakdown of the state, that the United States was a fucking anarchist state. Like there was, it was only self-organizing to help people. And so I was there through Occupy, and through Occupy they had a warehouse, and they were like, welcome, here's your mask, here's your boots, here's your crowbar, here's your wheelbarrow, here's your team, this guy's from Saskatoon, this guy's from fucking Georgia, and I'm like, this is weird. And we go to someone's house, and we're like, we're here to demo, demo your house. And it was really tragic, and we're like just pulling out the seat. And there was free food everywhere, 
right? Yoga teachers for America, Jesus for America, fucking yoga Jesus teachers, right? <laughs> They're just giving everything that you want. And I'm like, I'll have a hamburger and I'll have some lentil curry, right? And <laughs> FEMA wasn't there, right? There was no state support. It was chaos. Um, there was like, you know, people everywhere looking for scrap metal and everyone was working together. And I, it was like, I witnessed post-state, the post-state states, people actually doing things on their own. But it was in an, in an extreme situation, a disaster situation. And I realized then something that I knew, which is that the, the human spirit is incredible. We all know that. We all have our own personal experiences of struggle. We know stories of struggle. And the, spirit, the human spirit is incredible. And we will always organize. We will always find a way to do the fight for 15, to laugh, to have joy in the most horrible circumstances. And the state, as it goes to be more and more, I think in Canada, it's not fascism. It's more totalitarianism. It's a light totalitarianism that is enforced by our neighbors and that's enforced by the press and that's enforced by the police um, that isn't necessarily police vehicles like Americanized police vehicles because that actually shit is unbelievable but it, they don't need that because we're still too afraid to express ourselves and so every attack on our collective organizing whether it's an attack on a collective agreement an attack on a group of students an attack on a student union an attack on a movement an attack on a group of people is trying to crush all resistance to the state and every political party is implicated in it you know everyone well i'm going to have to be all like quebec exceptionalism except for quebec solidaire cuz fucking that's a whole other podcast episode but but the but the mainstream federal ones are all implicated in it and so I'm not surprised that the most awesome action in the last couple of years, like people in this room all had their hands on, right? People in this room all have their hands on Black Lives Matter, on the fight for 15, on fighting injustice locally or broader than that, the fighting for the sex ed curriculum, fighting against Rob Ford. Like these are, these are, our, these are survival. But it's, it's not enough. We know it's not enough, and it's not to denigrate that work because that work has to happen. But where are the coalitions to bring everybody together? Where is labor hiring people to help Black Lives Matter do their, their work? Where are the universities being like, we are going to protect our fucking right to dissent rather than being like, hey, Doug Ford, come and fuck us as hard as you can, right? <laughs> Literally, that's what the universities are doing. And, that's, and, and so it's like, you know, I don't want to, I understand probably everybody in this room is like literally at the edge of everything that they can do. They're literally giving it all and all this kind of stuff. But it's like, you know, I can do more, actually. I can do more. And I can be more strategic. And if I voted for Suze Morrison or if I voted for Jessica Bell, who's a friend of mine, or Joel Harden, and I'm like not impressed with what they're doing, then you call them. And you fucking say, what, is the, fu what the fuck is going on, right? Or how can we force you to do these things, because that's what we live in. It's an ecosystem, right? There are tendencies on the left that I'm not a part of, that I fully respect. They've got tactics that I'm like not totally sure about, but they play a role, I play a role, we are pushing, they're pushing me to the left, I'm pushing them to the left, people are pushing us to be less racist, people are pushing us to be less ableist, and we are to push them. And if we're not pushing them, then what the fuck? Then you can't blame Jagmeet Singh for doing shit. I mean, I can because I'm in Quebec and we're going to be an independent country. But, um, <laughs> but you, can't, you can't really blame them if they're not being pushed, right? When we were in the Canadian Federation of Students, which is, you know, an organization that's not radical, 
we fucking relied on radical students to push us. Like literally, we, we would organize with people and be like, can you please put these motions forward? Can you please push us? Can you please make us sure that we're doing these very radical things? Because at the end of the day, it is the debate that needs to be carried. And if we're looking to leadership to do that, then we're fucking not gonna do it. That's not how it works. No one becomes a leader because they're fucking radical. Literally nobody, period. We had a, um, another talk earlier today where uh, some of this kind of came up where we have to start thinking about, like, you know, if, if we're imagining the future, and as I said before, it's not going to get any better. We're not going to change the minds of the people who are really rooted in their Nazism right now. Like, we have to start being super creative about what, we're, what a fight back looks like. And so these movements that you've raised are really important and really exciting. And I hope we get to a point where we can start to think about, um, you know, we shouldn't have to, but maybe we're going to have to think about providing services for one another, right? Like some, some people already started doing that here in Toronto uh, with, the, with the safe injection sites, right? Like these, this, that's a really radical thing to, for a community to come together and say, we're just gonna do it because if you government will not do it, we're gonna engage in the civil disobedience and do it anyway for ourselves. And I mean, I learned that so um, palpably through the tent city action that Black Lives Matter did. The amount of services that we had in that space, like it was like, I see people who are in the audience who, are, who were there who are laughing because it was actually kind of funny. It was like, like I would, you know, start, you know, I was working full time still while tent city was happening. So it was like this, um, never sleeping moment, like time of my life. So I would like be there in the day and you know, like I'd go to work and I'd come back and it would be like, oh, we got a microwave and <laughs> now we have a kitchen over here. Like, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, uh, do, do the shift of like staying up all night to like uh, make sure that everything was safe and then and go, go to my house to shower, then go to work come back and, oh, we have a full medical center now, Sandy. <laughs> it's all set up over here. We've got the medics over here. And it was just like, okay, like we actually have the ability in a community to create services for one another where the state has failed. And uh, quite frankly, the state is failing in a lot of ways. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that there is some sort of internal struggle happening within the NDP. <laughs> I hope it's a struggle over like that will result in listening more and more to people on the ground who are part of these movements because that is the pathway to victory. They are never going to be better liberals than the liberals. They're never going to like take the conservative base. No one's going to bank on that shit. They should they should be listening to to movements like ours, right? Like that's what should be happening. But yeah, like <laughs> I don't know what's going on over there, but that's that's not it, like where we win is in our ability to organize for ourselves, and that's how we change the culture that the NDP relies on to get elected. And I think this whole discussion also requires a, a shout out and an acknowledgement to like indigenous organizers who have protected everything for so long from the Canadian state, and so specifically now the Bear Bear uh, Clan Patrol in cities across. Western Canada and Thunder Bay, right? Where people are actually out, looking out, helping, protecting people who are out on the streets, whether or not they live there or they're just out on the streets. Um, and uh, protecting each other from child services and child seizures. 
right? Like there is so much knowledge that is happening that if, you know, as someone who's not a member of that community, who's not imposing and not gonna get in there and like be like, teach me, I fucking do my research and I'm so like impressed by the resistance, the resilience, the, the language revitalization, right? The language camp that Christy Belcourt and Isaac uh, are running, right? It's like there's a language camp where, and, and they're not the only ones actually running it. Like there's other, there's other kinds of programs like that where there's full indigenous language camps to try and revitalize their languages. And, you know, I, so a couple of weeks ago, I had child services called on me. Someone, someone called child services on, on me and, and we didn't know why. And so we had 12 hours of like total hell wondering what the fuck was going on. And I realized in that moment that I just had no idea who to call to know what the fuck to do. Like I didn't know if it's this kind of complaint, this would happen. If it's this kind of complaint, this would happen. And because this happened, it's probably this kind of complaint. It was fully like I spent 12 hours being like, are my, my children gonna be seized tomorrow morning in this meeting with child services? And so sharing this knowledge, right? And being like, this is an attack. These are anonymous complaints. These are systems that, are, that exist to fuck you up. And, um, but, they're all, but they're also systems that have some safeguards in place that should work, that don't work, but in some, that can work too, right? So how do we share that knowledge and how do we understand this with each other? Um, and that requires talking about it. But you know, for, I have no problem talking about it, but like, I have a partner who doesn't really want the fucking world to know that child services was called on us, right? Obviously. I have to be like, sorry, we have to tell everybody. And then he has to be like, mm, okay, <laughs> you know? Um, so we do have to share and talk and, and organize that way. Yeah. Hey, um, so I think one of the things that Sandy, you, and other folks did with BLMTO was you controlled the narrative. Um, right now, we're not doing that. We just had a huge uh, rally with the Ontario Health Coalition. The day after the municipal election, 7,000 people got no media attention because Ford went up to Scarborough and made an announcement about repealing the gains, uh, many of the gains under Bill 148, and there was a carbon tax announcement. There was a uh, counter demo that was planned uh, when there were supposed to be some uh, anti-immigrant folks coming into town. Um, and all of the work that we're doing right now, to me, seems very reactive, and we're not actually driving the narrative. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what our organizing would look like and how it would be different if we were actually controlling the narrative that went out there rather than just responding to the shit the right is throwing at us. Well, I actually, I, I, I think that reactive organizing is really important, and I think that it is uh, a good thing. Um, and so don't throw that out the window. We need to be able to do that uh, and do it well. I think like there's a, uh, so everybody who knows me and has organized with me has heard me make this rant before, but I'm gonna do it again just for y'all. So there is like this word reactionary that is uh, like means being conservative essentially. Um, that people have confused with reactive and often like th they've heard like the negative connotation behind the idea of being reactionary and think that that means that you shouldn't be reactive and you should only organize proactively. I'm not saying that that's what you're saying, but I'm, I'm saying that that's something that I've heard out there and I want to disabuse everybody. <laughs> of, like those are not opposites. They're not the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. It is very important to react when the right does something terrible. We should react. They should not be able to uh, go forward without some sort of uh, friction. They should have friction, if not an entire hard stop wall. So we should do that. That is very important. Um, in addition, though, um, we, we do need to have proactive organizing, which is kind of what we were talking about before with social movements. 
In Ontario, our social movements are really weak. Across this country, our social movements are really, really weak. Um, that's not just like that's not because like people suck. That's not <laughs> what the reason is. It's because you know we've been under attack for a really long time. A lot of the activists who've been doing this work uh, get burned out, were arrested during the G20, and have uh, perhaps restrictions on themselves still to this day, where they can't organize in the same way. Some of our most talented activists that people may not realize that that's a reality that has really affected our ability to organize. Um, we have to rebuild those social movements. Like we, uh, Nora and I are often talking about how there's, there's not really a feminist movement here. Like there's, there's no feminist movement. Like who do we, who do we call? Like if, we're, if we wanna have a, a feminist uh, uh, fight back on something, like who's the organization? Like I, I don't know, like. <laughs> um, we have to define those, the, those groups. We have to create them. And that's a lot of really, really hard work. And um, I think that powerful organizations, like, it's, you know, I, I hope that it, eventually the universities, like, get their, like, realize that, oh, we're going to lose it all. Yeah, everything. <laughs> and start using some of that money to literally underwrite activists. I was in the States recently for, at this conference where I met a bunch of organizations whose like purpose is to underwrite activists. So they have these massive foundations that are for the purpose of like random shit, like saving gorillas or something. And But what they really do is they pay for activists to do their work. So they're paying for an activist who's in BLM in Chicago, like three of them, a salary so they can just go and like and have benefits, and they can they underwrite the work of uh, people who do guerrilla gardening and so on. Like what? Like unions could do that in a big way. Here, like we could fund the anti-fascist movement. We have the money to fund it on the left. But I'm not really sure why. Like, is it that people are like, nervous? Have people not come up with the idea? I've said it in so many workshops now that I know you all have heard it. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know why, um, you know, like, there's resistance to, to really funding and supporting sustainable social movements because it's fucking hard. It is hard to sustain it um, for so long. And you get really, like, take it from me, you get really tired <laughs> And it's really hard, you know, like while you're working a job or, you know, getting fired or trying to work a job or living a regular life and organizing, like we can't just let our movements die and uh, we can't exist without movements if we want to really make, a, make an impact. Yeah, and we're reactive because we don't have any ability to be proactive, right? Like I think it react re being reactive is important because literally that's all we have right now. We don't, under, we don't control the power of, of the state. Like no. Um, and, you know, and then it depends on what you mean. Like, so you have a rally, and what is success? That you get mainstream media coverage? Well, of course, you're not going to get it if the premier does something that's fucked. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, if your metric for success has literally nothing to do with how successful your organizing is, then you need a new metric of success. And this is why... 7,000 people is great. It's like, very you good. you made a massive impact. Yeah. That's an impact. Yeah, and those are the people who hopefully will come back out or who are involved in these local coalitions and whatever. And it's like the CBC didn't pay attention. It's like, yeah, the CBC fucking fuck them, right? Right, the fucking Toronto Star. Like, fuck them too, right? I don't know. Like, 
we, you know, I, I was supposed to, I, the CBC flew me in to talk about what it was like to be under attack for Humboldt for a fucking one-on-one for 20 minutes, and I show up, and they're like, yeah, so we have to cut your segment. Like, they flew me in, and they're like, we have to cut your segment, uh, so you're going to have a three-minute conversation, and then we're going to fly you home. And I was like, oh, okay, why? And they're like, well, because the finance minister agreed to be on the air. And I'm like, what in the fuck free press changes its editorial decision because a fucking wax talking head is like, yeah, I'm gonna come on your show and say shit. I'm gonna say shit. And you're like gonna bump everything that you were planning to do that is journalistic to listen to fucking Bill Morno. Guess what you're not gonna do? Shit, you're not gonna do shit. You're not changing and you're not gonna have a gotcha moment. You're not gonna have a fucking scoop. You are gonna get shit. It's and so free PR for the federal liberal party. It's free That's PR it for is. the federal liberal party. And so it's like, so we cannot rely on media coverage as a, as a metric of our success. Media coverage is great when it happens, and when it doesn't happen, you're like, make your own. Whatever. You know, fuck. Thank God we had a photographer there, right? Thank God we had good photos. Um, and so we have to also be okay with the fact that if we're reacting all the time, we literally cannot build anything. That is the definition of being reactive because we're too busy being reactive. And so, yes, we build social movements to be proactive while at the same time we're reacting to stuff. Hi. Um, I have two questions, if that's okay. First, about controlling the narrative and uh, like sharing knowledge. I'm from Scarborough, and I recently came across, this is, I don't know much about them, so it's not an endorsement, um, but the discourse, and they are, they like take a poll of what people in the community want to be covered, and then they try and write stories about it, and they're doing like a segment in Scarborough about like stereotypes and all this stuff. Anyways, um, so that's like an alternative media, um, and do you think it's, it's, better or, or like a good strategy is to support that kind of thing and boost alternative media that is telling these stories? Or do you think that that knowledge sharing happens best in, in like organizing grassroots kind of community stuff? Um, so that's that. And then the second one is unrelated, but I would love you to cover it, is I have two small kids and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do, give more of myself. Um, to things that, that are important and include my kids or not, or just if you have caregiving responsibilities of any kind, how do you mesh that with that? Totally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the question of uh, wh what do you do is really personal. What skills do you have? If you're a writer, fucking get involved with alternative media. You know, why not? You'll practice, you'll learn, you'll make mistakes, you'll meet new people. If you're not a good writer, don't fucking try to be a writer, right? There's no point. Not, not, writing sucks, right? Um, I like writing. I mean, I, like, writing is easy for me. If it was hard for me, I would be like, fuck this, right? That's like why I'm not a pianist, right? I was like, this is hard. I'm not going to be a pianist. So not, she became an organist. I mean, not fucking professionally. If there was an organ here, I'd be playing it, but like... She's an organist, seriously. Yeah, but, you know, I'm not recording or anything. Okay. Right? <laughs> so it's about skill set. You know, examine your own skill set, figure out you've got limited time, what brings you the most joy. And I think that there's not like a, a hierarchy of what's, what's more virtuous. It's just literally, this is where I can place my time. The question on caregiving is not easy, right? I have two kids as well. Uh, they are twins, which is the fucking worst, right? <laughs> if you are a twin, literally text your parents right now and be like, I'm fucking sorry. 
if you can. Um, and uh, and so um, yeah, like for like the only way that it makes it work for my family is that my my partner is like a bit more shy than I am and so he's happy for me to do the work and he's happy to take the kids and so it's like get out of the house do the do the organizing work to go to the meetings be my representative because I'm, I'd prefer to stay at home do my other work right because he's got a, another job and I'll watch the kids um, but I think what the, the 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 perspective that guides me with with children and child ra- child rearing and stuff is like you know, it's it sucks. Like, I'm anyone in this room that's a parent, I'm sure you're like, the world, like, I don't know if my kids are going to see a world, period. Right? The world is fucked. And so, for me, it's really important to just model my politics all the time to them. It's just model. I don't, I don't have to talk about them. It's, it's like, I, I try to live the best political life that I can live. And that... My, that they hear political debate between my partner and I, and they do. Literally the other night, <laughs> one of my kids, I was ranting about something. <laughs> and I was literally yelling with my finger in the air at my partner, like not yelling at him, but yelling about something. And one of my kids looks at me and goes, nah, 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 <laughs> with his finger in the air. <laughs> And I was like, I'm pissed at that, but like it's okay too because he gets <laughs> that like I am I'm passionate about this, and um, and I think that that's the best gift that I can give my my kids um, <laughs> is a, a crazy angry mom that is not going to save their ass because they can figure it out them fucking selves. Um, but um, but also finding a community of people and finding that space like it's I, I the thing about being in Quebec is that people have kids both really young and really old, and so spaces tend to be more kid-friendly, I find there. The debates that I remember in Toronto just don't exist there, and bringing a kid to a meeting is not a big deal, but it's such a pain in the ass that you just find someone else to take care of your kids, and then there's, like, just apartments are set up differently, so, like, I know someone who just left his door open because his neighbors would listen for his kid because they were all in the same space, right? And that's just not something that I think really can happen in Toronto for a bunch of, like, logistical reasons um, because we just have, like, more apartment blocks that are apartment... Anyway, whatever. So I don't know, it's really hard, it's a struggle, and I would just find like fellow parents in the movement and, and then not get too down when you have to miss stuff, unfortunately, right? It's like, you know, if anyone thinks that someone re- leading the revolution is someone with two young kids, like they're fucked, because you just, it's either you pick your kids or you pick the revolution, and you could pick the revolution, but you know, your kids probably need you too, so fuck, fine. I say that I'm like not with my kids right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> And also, though, uh, organizers should be attentive to trying to make sure that there is programming for, uh, like, if, are we building a world where we're trying to include everybody? Let's build that world in our organizing. I think that was one of the major successes of the very public work that we were doing through BLM, was that almost every major action that we had, whether it was the Allen Road takeover or Tent City or, I don't know, you name it, like that weird meeting that we had with the government, like all of that had programming or space specifically for children and parents. And it makes a difference of who comes out and who feels accepted into the movement and who finds a place there. Make spaces for everybody. Like if we're, if we're trying to build a world for everyone, then build a world for everyone with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And your other question was at the, oh yeah, all of the above. Yeah. It's not an either or. Um, all of like, you know, the, the alternative media is good 
and getting information across through organizing is good. It's all it's all good. Like Everything's we, good. The, the, the beautiful and most frustrating thing about this moment is that we have nothing figured out. So try it all. <laughs> Hopefully some of it works. <laughs> and if it doesn't, well, we fucking tried, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.